19, verse, uh, uh, or, or chapter 19, verses 17 to 23. And uh, while you're turning there, I, I want to let you know something from uh, Liz's heart and my heart is that Liz and I love being here. We love being your pastoral family. And you are such an amazing church and ministry. And we have been honored to serve alongside you even though I had no idea what I was getting into the first day I came. I made the comment during the AGM that if you would have told me that I would have been pastoring during COVID and what COVID would have meant, I might have run around, uh, turned around, ran around, but uh, ran away. But I am so glad that I didn't because I have uh, been blessed by such an amazing church and you guys are amazing. And I, I just want to let you know that we enjoy being here, and it's my honor and privilege to share the Word of God with you. If you're just joining us for the first time, uh, we are, uh, you're joining us as we are entering into our series on the book of Ephesians. Uh, the book of Ephesians is a New Testament letter written to the church in Ephesus, and it's, we're going to look how redefining our identity in Christ actually flows out of our lives and redefines the nation. I believe that Christ has promised every spiritual blessing that, we, that you and I can have. Everything that is blessed, every benefit that we have, every privilege, every, every perk there is to following Jesus is made available to us. He has offered us forgiveness from our sins freedom from slavery. He has lavished wisdom upon us. He has made known the mystery of his will. We were once dead in our sins and now we are alive in Jesus. Every barrier preventing us from becoming full participants in the body of Christ has been stripped down. Sin has lost its ability to control you. Do you know that? The things that control you, the addictions that you have, the secret sins, in Christ you have the ability to be free from that. We are brought into the light and we are clothed in the Lord Jesus himself. However, too many Christians love it, live uncertain of who they are in Christ or what Christ has made available to them. And I believe... Not only our culture, but a lot of church people today are going through a little bit of an identity crisis. We are Christians who live in spiritual poverty, not knowing the size of their spiritual bank accounts. Some of us live a spiritually poverty-stricken life, and the book of Ephesians is God's answer of how we access all those riches in Jesus. But before we get into the book of Ephesians, uh, I thought it would be important for us to spend some time learning about the actual church itself. In Ephesus, the church of the Ephesians is actually one of the churches in the Bible that we know the most about. And uh, I think that is, uh, it, I want, so what I would like to do for the next uh, two weeks is all I want to do is set the stage for Ephesians, okay? So... You might get something profound and uh, life-changing, but, but at the core, all I'm really helping, all I really want to do is, is set up the book of Ephesians so that when we get to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1, you can understand the context and a little bit of what is going on. And what is happening is that Paul 
has planted a church in the city of Ephesus. And it's, the, Ephesus is a, a city much like Vancouver in that it is influential. It's a culture-shaping port city with a hodgepodge of spiritual worldviews. And because it is a, uh, Ephesus is a city that is filled with a bunch of uh, spiritual worldviews, you could actually say that Ephesus is hard ground, meaning that when you go into the city of Ephesus and you want to tell people about Jesus, people are not receptive to it. They're not willing to have an open mind to it. They're just kind of like the open-mindedness and the pluralism of the city of Ephesus actually makes it hard for the gospel to gain any ground in the city. Okay? And I think it's important for us to realize that God records what happens in the city of Ephesus to tell us one thing, and that is this. Even the most hardest and unreceptive culture, people, family, town, community, God can bust through and do amazing work there. God plants a church in or sorry, God plants a church in the city of Ephesus, a hard city by anyone's imagination. And in review, what winds up happening is that God it busts out in a spirit in very cool ways. That's what we talked about last week. So Paul goes there, he tells people about Jesus, he plants a church there. He lives Priscilla and Aquila there, who I have to correct, I said they were two women. It's actually a married couple, but just so you're not confused when you read the Bible. And uh, they, are, they are planning a church there. Paul returns, and he continues his ministry there day after day after day, teaching people about Jesus and telling them about Jesus. And some amazing things start happening that have never happened in the city before. It actually disrupts the city. We're going to learn next week that it actually disrupts the city to the point where it, it, where it affects the economy. But what winds up happening is that when the gospel goes out, people begin being filled with the Holy Spirit. We learned about that last week. People begin physically being healed. They were taught every day and discipled every day uh, in the temple of Tyrannus, and people were set free from demonic activity. That's what we learned about last week. Okay? And you'll remember that as we ended the story last week, is that we left the story, we ended up our story of what happened in the city of Ephesus with a bunch of guys taking Jesus and trying to use them for his own glory. So there were a bunch of Jewish leaders who were looking and seeing that the name of Jesus was uh, being able to cast out demons. And so they were going around performing exorcisms. Exorcisms... Or is the practice of casting out demons who gained footholds in people's lives. And it was a common practice before Jesus came on the scene. Jews did it all the time. It was a common practice in Jesus himself. Jesus did it. And Jesus' disciples even did it, as evidenced by Jesus sending out the 72. Okay? And what they were having is they were seeing that Jesus, the name of, using the name of Jesus was able to set people free from bondage. And so these Jewish leaders were uh, kind of connecting from Christ at a distance. They weren't real about him. They, were giving, they weren't giving their lives to him. And the response in the text that's on the screen right now 
is that the demons beat them up, stripped them naked, and wounded them, and then sent them out, and everyone laughed at them. Okay? And what is so interesting is, is, is that this can actually be one of the options of your life and my life. If you want to follow Jesus from a distance, and you may be not serious about him, maybe evil will come and beat you up because you don't have the power or the resources to defeat it. All you have is some sort of religious idea, and that is that I'm trying my best, I'm trying to listen to the do's and do, do nots, and that's your vision of Christianity without any real resource, and when, if that is, all you will do is just get beat up, and what winds up happening is you will walk away from the church and walk away from Jesus because that's exactly what was pitched to you, and you felt the burden of this kind of religious feeling. But what the gospel does is it comes along, and it sets you free from that and says Jesus has accomplished all of that for you. These, Jew, these Jewish leaders didn't do that, so these Jewish leaders used Jesus' name as some sort of incantation or good luck charm. It doesn't work. The demon overpowers them, beats them back in blue, and strips them naked. And then this is where our text picks up. Acts chapter 7, 19, verses 17. And it says this, And this became known... Uh, and this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and all fear fell upon them. And the name of, the Je- name of Jesus Christ was extolled. And many of those, believer- those who are now believers came, confessing and in- in- in divulging their practices. A number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they continued, and they counted the value of, and found out, and came to about fifty thousand pieces of silver, which is quite a lot of money. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily in the city of Ephesus. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, "After I've been there, I must also go to Rome." And, have, and having been there, and having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Eurydice, he said to himself, I will stay in Asia for a while. This is the reading of God's word. So what you have happening here is, is that, there in, uh, is that at the fallout of what had happened after these demons had attacked the people. And what you need to see, to, to kind of illustrate what's going on here, let me explain. In my early 20s, I was able to intern at a rather unique church. It saw itself as having a rather unique calling, and that was to share the good news of Jesus to every immigrant who entered into the city of Vancouver. When they came to faith in Jesus, they would ask the pastors to come over and pray for the home. So here they would, here's this church, and they would, they would specifically target Immigrants, specifically immigrants who didn't speak English, people who had no connection to Jesus at all, who had never heard of Jesus, and who had primarily come from an Eastern background in spirituality. And the church did a good job of it, and so many people came to faith in Jesus Christ. And when they did that, they would invite the pastors over and say, Pastor, could you come over to my apartment? Could you come over to my house and pray a prayer of dedication 
over my house. I want to use my house to the glory of God, okay? And this is what they would do, okay? You're not going to believe this. <clears throat> because, you know, here's, here's, here's what's crazy. is they, they would take their Buddhist statues, okay? And all their Eastern uh, incense candles and any kind of sacred Eastern writing that they would have, and it, it was crazy. They would, they would put it in a garbage can in the backyard, and they would burn it as a way of saying, I am done with this, I renounce this, this is evil and demonic, and I am giving this to the Lord, which I actually find really cool and a little bit ironic because at the same time that all these Asians were becoming Christians and actually renouncing all this Buddhist stuff, all the white people in the city of Vancouver would go to the home and garden section of the Home Depot and buy the Buddhist statue and stick it in their garden, right? It was just a little weird. And so what you're having here is you're having something similar to that happen in our text, okay? Is that what is going on is there is a people renouncing. Uh, Ephesus is, a, what do I would say, a, a spiritually pluralistic city. There was one form of spirituality that was popular than than most, and that was the worship of Artemis, okay? But mostly, Ephesus is kind of like our own time in that it is a pluralistic city in a pluralistic culture filled with a lot of people, okay, who believe a whole bunch of different things, okay? Ephesus, I believe, was a stronghold of Satan. Here, many evil things, both superstitious and satanic, were practiced, Books containing formulas of sorcery and other ungodly and forbidden arts were plentiful in the city. Ephesus was a city involved in the occult. And because Ephesus was a city full of spirituality of the occult, many people practiced sorcery, and for that reason, it's very demonic. And actually, here's where the connection comes into Ephesians. When you read the book of Ephesians, you notice that chapter 6 is dedicated to spiritual warfare, okay? This is part of the reason why, is that there is a very strong uh, occult practice happening in the city of Ephesus. And what happens is apparently the exorcism incident for many believers did not, they didn't know that they were involved in the demonic. They likely saw their actions as far more innocent in that light until they saw the reality of demonic activity that just happened. So this prompted Christians to renounce any remaining connections to the demonic. They renounced the demonic by confessing and burning their magic books and disregarding whatever value that they had. These books and scrolls full of magic charms, amulets, and incantations were well known in Ephesus and they were considered valuable. One commentator I looked at suggested that the value of 50,000 pieces of silver today is estimated between $1 and $5 million. And when you and I read the text, the here you have a bunch of Christians who are renouncing and confessing their sin and their participation in the demonic. In verse 20, it says this, so the word of the Lord continue to increase and prevail mightily. So basically here, what I, wanna, what, I, what I want you to understand here in this is that you have a bunch of Christians 
and they start confessing their sin, meaning that they aren't a bunch of Christians who are pretending they are sinless and that everything is fine. They're willing to say, I've got a problem, I've got a mess, I'm a disaster, and I am going to come and confess my sin to you. And the Bible tells us that because they did that, the message of Jesus provided mightily in the city of Ephesus. So uh, here's, what I want, here's what I want you to understand and catch, and here's the big idea that I want you to know today. Obviously, what God is doing in Ephesus is the work of the Holy Spirit, there's no doubt. God is moving. He, there is a work of the Spirit that is totally Him. It can't be contributed to anything else but God willing and moving as He's seen fit. But I want you to know that because He does, what that results in is Christians coming and publicly confessing that I am broken in a city that it has a hard heart, that it was hard to accept Jesus where people are antagonistic, where people are not uh, receiving Jesus. And I think, here's the thing, I want you to understand the catch. I think confession itself, confessing our mess to people, helps people become more receptive to Jesus. Let me say that again. Confessing, confessing our mess, helps people become more open in idea uh, or to the idea of Jesus Christ. And the reason that I think that is simply this, is that people do not like being around someone who is unwilling to accept responsibility for their shortcomings. Tell me if that's not true in your life or your, or your thing, Okay. Tell me, like, like if, you are a, if you are a boss, if you are in charge of people, and you have employees, tell me that you enjoy the employee who never admits he's wrong. Is that true? You like that guy? Tell me you like it when your kids never admit you're wrong. They're wrong. Do you like them? Tell me you never... You, you just enjoy it when your spouse is that person who can never be wrong. Amen? No way. And so what I'm trying to tell you is that in general, what winds up happening is that people who can never admit they're wrong, never admit their brokenness, never admit their short stakes, what winds up happening is, you, is that most people tend to stay away, if it is possible, from those kind of people. You don't want to be friends with them. But when we are a people that confess, I think that what winds up happening is that we become a people that other people feel safe around, that people feel willing to open up around. And I think that is what you are seeing in the text here today, is that Christians, they are coming, they, they come to faith in Jesus, they realize that their lives are falling apart, and they confess their sin and that by itself, that somehow takes the edge off it. So you have these uh, people who don't care about Jesus, who are not receptive to Jesus. And now I think what winds up happening is the act of confession does something in our souls that makes people willing or makes people less 
abrasive or less antagonistic and more willing to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that you should go home after the service, go on Facebook, and post everything you've done that's ever wrong. I don't think that's what the text is saying. But I think what it is saying is that there's something that confession does in us, in our character, that makes it attract, makes the gospel attractive to non-Christians. And I think that itself is part of the reason why it says in the text that the gospel was able to prevail. Let me, let me illustrate for, for, for an example. Uh, I became a follower of Jesus when I was 14 years old. And uh, when I was 14, I, I had an addiction to the internet, okay? a pretty bad one. Okay? When I was 17, I had this friend, his name was Jeremiah, and I had just walked through a season in my life where, where, I, where God had freed me from that addiction, and he had worked in my life. And I was going to an inner city high school, and so what people wore is they wore pretty some sketchy stuff, you know, the drug paraphernalia, Tupac with the guns, the whole nine yards, all that. And uh, what my friend, he would, come to, he would come to school every day, and we have a picture of a very scantily clad girl, almost naked, on a front shirt. And so eventually I just got annoyed with him and say, dude, when you're around me, can you please take that T-shirt off? And his very first reaction was, you're just being a judgmental Christian. And I said to him, listen, no, no, I'm not. I'm, I'm not... I'm not trying to be one of those judgmental Christians. Let me tell you a story. And then I began to tell him a story about how it was bondage to lust and and pornography and all that kind of thing and how Jesus had freed me from it. And you know, at the end of that story, you know what he said? He said, oh, Dan, I totally understand now. Not only am I going to take the T-shirt off, I now respect, I want to know more about Jesus Christ. You see what I'm saying here is that confessing our brokenness somehow softens the ground in people's lives where people are more willing to accept Jesus Christ. The gospel gains traction among lost people when confession and great cost is given up for it. Confession makes people, I believe, receptive to Jesus, not just the act itself, but what confession does in the lives of a believer. And I think that is very significant for you and I today because when you and I read this text, you need to understand something, is that it is significant that you understand that the people who practice magic in this text came confessing and telling their deeds. And in that day and in that era, what that, it was thought that the power of the magic spells was in their secrecy. So if I cast the magic spell and I kept it secret, that somehow that is where the power lies, and actually bringing it out in the open dissipates the power of the magic. And I think that is a great illustration for how evil and sin works, is that the power of sin in our lives is in the secrecy. It's when it's in the darkness. Some of you today are struggling with some sort of habit or sin or something, and the reason that you're struggling with it isn't because, is because you haven't come out with it. You haven't brought it and confessed it and divulged it. 
You're hiding it. It's, it's in your back pocket somewhere. You're living with shame, which the Bible says is undealt with guilt. And in that sense, you're never ever going to be free from it. You need to bring it out in the open so that Jesus can heal it. You can't hide these things like Adam and Eve did You were in the garden. You remember that story? When they sinned, God came and got, they, they sinned, they realized they sinned, and God in the cool of the day came and called for them, where are you? And where was Adam? And you know where he was? He was hiding. <clears throat> he was covering up the sin, and that's what we do. We get involved in sin, and we, we cover it up, and you retreat because you don't want people to call you out. You don't want people to love you. You don't want Jesus to heal you. So you stop going to church. You stop going to your accountability group. And you stop picking up the phone when you know the person is going to ask, how is that thing going? You stop replying to the text. And we all know that you're doing it. Just the other day, I think it was Stanley. Stanley, uh, where are you? He's, oh, he's like, okay. The other day, it was actually last night, he texted me. He says, he says Dan, are we still on for hanging out tomorrow? And I didn't answer the text. <laughs> and the reason I didn't answer the text is because I, I forgot to ask Liz if it was okay and I didn't want to tell him. And you and I do that all the time. Is When, we, when someone phones us, we know exactly what's happening. This isn't the 90s anymore. We all know who's calling us. So when someone, someone calls you and you don't pick up the phone... You know what just happened? You, you get the caller ID. You know whose number it is. You know that they're going to ask you the question. And so you, you say in your heart, I'm not going to pick that up. And you're going through your mind what kind of excuse you can give for not picking up the phone. And you know what? You're, the phone is not in the bedroom. 90% of the time, the phone is at your hip. Okay. Your phone is attached to your hip, so when you and I don't pick it up, we know what is happening. You're afraid that someone is going to call you out. And when you, you need to understand that the power of sin resides in its secrecy. And you have to tell it and draw it out. Some of you this morning need to confess sin to Jesus and go home and look at your spouse or look at your friends and admit what you've done. You need to tell your friends and family whatever it is. Listen carefully to how God instructs us on this issue. James chapter 5, verse 16 says this, Confess to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The critical word in this passage is healed. Make no mistake, God is not saying confess your sins to one another and you will be forgiven. That's not what it's saying. God forgives us when we confess our sins to him, right? So some of you, you have an issue with talking about other people with your sin because you're hiding behind the excuse that only God can forgive sin. Therefore, God is the only person that I need to do it with. But James 5.16 says we confess our sins to each other. And, and the reason that we confess our sins to each other is because we are healed. God forgives us when we confess our sins to him, but our healing often begins when we confess sins to each other. 
And saying it verbally and out loud is critical because it puts it out in the open, forces us even further out of denial, and minimizes the risk of us falling back and into him. And that is what we are seeing happening in the story. We're seeing Christians who have hurt other people through the casting spells or curses on other people, and they say, I'm done with it, I've hurt you. I've made a mistake. This is wrong, I renounce it. And here I am, and I'm going to burn it. And I'm going to confess that this isn't the way, that Jesus is the way. And you know what happens when that happened? Is that God uses that humble heart and the gospel spreads in a city that actually would have had a hard heart. What happens when you and I confess? Well, here's what I want you to understand. You want to hit the next slide for me there. When you and I confess, a number of things begin to happen in our lives you will experience freedom that you never thought possible. You no longer need to be living around with your fear of your past being uncovered. How many of you are here today who have some closet secret that you are afraid of someone is finding out? When you confess sins to other Christians, trusted Christians, people who are going to pray for you, you no longer need to live in fear of being found out. You never, you never, you will experientially learn the skill of walking in truth, no matter how hard it will be. You won't feel the perpetual urge to defend yourself. You'll learn, you'll learn to know and own what is sin in your life. You don't need to wear masks anymore. How many of us spent the last two years complaining about masks? And here, yeah, <laughs> and here we are. And most of us, in some way, feel that we need to have some sort of metaphorical or, or put a mask on a church and pretend that we're someone we're not. And when you learn to confess and say, I am a broken person, here's my mess, you don't actually need to put the mask on anymore. You can break here. You won't feel the need to blame others for how you feel. It's hard to blame others when you've just confessed your own mistakes, amen? You will feel the much, you will be vulnerable less to temptation because it's out there and you will feel a greater sense of accountability now that it's not in secret. And all in all, what I think will happen is that you will become a much nicer person to be around. People don't like being around other people who are willing to accept responsibility for their shortcomings. You will be a safe person to be around. Others will begin openly to share their hearts and struggles with you. And they'll feel your acceptance, which is based in Jesus Christ, and God will use that in the healing of other people. And that's what I think is happening in this text. Okay? That's what I think is going on. Obviously, God is doing some sort of mighty work that only God can initiate. But I think confessing the sin, this this act of renouncing and divulging, what it does is it makes people less antagonistic to Jesus. When someone opens up about their own shortcomings, it makes people willing to consider the good news of Jesus Christ. 
And so what I really would want to argue for you tonight today is that some of us this afternoon, despite all the things that we practice, reading our Bibles, praying, going to church, serving, confessing our sins to each other is actually not something that we do very often. And the result is, is that I do not think that we, we, people will be able to trust us with the same level. It's very hard to go to somebody and say, listen, I need you to believe in Jesus because there's unconditional grace and forgiveness. And yet, hold stuff back in your own life because you're afraid of how people will take it. I think what is going on here is God is using the confession of the believers to further the gospel of Jesus Christ. Some time ago, I know I shared the story before, but I'm running out of illustrations, so if you have have illustrations, you can send them my way. Uh, Sometime years ago, I was a part of a young adult group, and uh, at the end of our meeting, a young man stormed the front, grabbed the microphone, and uh, he confessed that he had slept with someone else in the church, which I think is a pretty bold move considering the company that he was keeping. He got up in front of everybody, and he said, I did it. I'm sorry. I made a mistake, and I'm broken. And the end result of that was that the whole young adults group, 70 people in all, got up from their seats got up on stage and prayed for them and said, brother, you did make a mistake, but we are here for you and we are going to pray for you and we are going to be in your corner. That man came to faith in Jesus Christ. Confession of sin, of our own brokenness, I think breaks the hard ground that we see in people's lives. And so if you're ever in a situation You're ever in this town, you're at Ghost Pine, you're in Three Hills, you're at a family dinner, and you just feel like it's hard ground. You feel like it's it's something that that you can't get into, you can't get, you can't mention Jesus, then I start by saying that you start by the place of confession. Do you know what I started doing? I I don't know if you've ever had this experience or not, but there have been times when I've been around certain groups of people and the conversation is shallow and it never gets past the shallowness. So it, when I was a youth pastor, it was always about video games. I could, never, I could never get past it with guys in video games, right? So they would talk about video games or farts or their iPhones. And here I am week after week and I'm trying to get them to talk about Jesus and all they want to talk about is that. Or Lord of the Rings. I had these guys that would go on for hours and hours and hours about the fantasy novels about Jesus. And, or sorry, not about Lord of the Rings. But when I asked them a question about Jesus or the Bible, they would just clam up. I could not get them to start talking about Jesus. Even here, sometimes I've noticed that I've had a hard time breaking in the conversation if there are people that just want to talk about their trade, their welding, their mechanicry, whatever. I, I can't get past that to the heart stuff. And I just, and I want to, I want to talk about how those heart conversations, do you know what I started doing in those instances? When I feel that the conversation can't get past the small talk, 
I start thinking about something that I can appropriately admit that I am struggling with in that context, and I share it. And you know what winds up happening? I get past the conversations of PlayStations. And I get past the conversations of welding. And I can get past the conversations of, of, of trucks or whatever it is. Simply because I was willing to admit at some level of my brokenness, it was able to get past the hard heart. Some of you this, this afternoon noon, need to go home and you need to confess first to Jesus and, and then maybe your spouse or your friends of what you've done. Who do you need to confess to today? The rest of the text says this in verse 21. Now after these events, Paul resolved in his spirit to pass through Macedonia, and I can't pronounce that, and go to Jerusalem saying, I have been there, I must go there. I also, after I've been there, I must also go to Rome. So what is happening here is after people have been renouncing, renouncing their sin, Paul senses that God is calling him elsewhere, that the Holy Spirit is calling elsewhere. In verse 22, it says this, And after being sent into Macedonia, uh, having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Eurtas, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. So he senses that God is saying, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm going to send you over here. But he also senses that he needs to stay in Ephesus for a while. So he sends two people ahead of them. And in verse 23, it says this, and I want you to catch this. About this time, there arose no little disturbance about the way. The way is what they call Christians back then. And that's a story that you're just going to have to come back and hear next week. Okay? What happens is that God takes this church, the small church, tells a bunch of non-Christians about Jesus. People begin feeling, seeing God at work in the city. People feel the need to confess the sin. And the gospel spreads like wildfire in a city that you and I would normally write off. And it does so to the extent that it disturbs the very foundation of the city and its economy. And that's a story we'll find out next week. So uh, why don't we close with one more song? Hymn number 762, what a day that will be. We shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is, 1 John 3, 2.